Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Almighty God, we know that we have not come to a mountain that can be touched, like Israel at Mount Sinai. But we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to a general assembly and church of the firstborn, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We confess that we can barely understand how all this can be true, but we dare not refuse your word. We know that your word is living and active, and it thunders directly from heaven in order to shake heaven and earth, to remove everything that can be shaken, so that only that which cannot be shaken remains. And so we bow before you now. We bow before your mighty word in reverence and fear, worshiping you in the name above every name, in the name of Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. amen. In Revelation chapter 12, John describes the story of Christmas in a somewhat strange way. He describes the story of Christmas as a woman clothed with the sun, moon, and stars, crying out in labor, getting ready to give birth. And there's a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns standing before the woman ready to devour her child as soon as it is born. The woman brings forth a son, John says, a child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child is immediately caught up to God and to his throne. But now war breaks out in heaven, and the great dragon, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, was cast out to earth, and there was great rejoicing in heaven because the accuser was cast down. We don't usually read Revelation 12 at Christmas. You don't usually see nativity scenes with Mary and Joseph in a stable and a giant red dragon with seven heads and ten horns waiting outside, but maybe we should. John is telling the story from a heavenly perspective with certain features revealed that are usually hidden to our eyes. But notice that John is also collapsing much of the story. The child is born and the child is caught up to God in an instant. In this way, we can see that the great red dragon was not only behind Herod, seeking to murder the babies in Bethlehem, but also behind Pontius Pilate and the murderous and plotting Jews. And in a somewhat striking way, the birth of Jesus leads directly to the ascension of Jesus. The point seems to be that the birth of Jesus guaranteed the rest. If Jesus was born, then he was most certainly born the child king. So as we gather for worship this morning, remember that there is far more going on than we can see. By faith, we are in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and we are gathered before the lamb who was slain, the child made king, the ancient of days, with myriads of angels and spirits of just men made perfect. We do not gather here as the accused, because the accuser has been cast down out of heaven. 
The one born in Bethlehem cast him out. So we confess our sins, we sing our hymns, offer our prayers, hear the word proclaimed and gather around the table as the beloved children of God, eager to be in fellowship with our Father and with one another, and most welcome. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. Father, we confess our lack of faith. We confess that when things do not go the way we had planned, we assume that they have gone wrong and they have gone badly. We get angry and fearful. And in our anger and fear, we often take things into our own hands. We sin with our mouths and with our minds and with our actions. We say things and think things and do things that are not helpful, are not kind, and are not just. Father, forgive us for our unbelief, our sinful anger, and our faithless fear. And forgive us for thinking that our plans are the best plans, for thinking that we can run the world as well as you can. Thank you for not going along with our plans when you knew they wouldn't be good for us or helpful for the kingdom. Teach us to trust in you and give us eyes to see how you are at work, how you are providing and how your story is coming to pass. Help us to see the opportunities you are giving in the midst of giving us something different than we had hoped for or expected. Teach us to trust you so that we might truly be a light to our neighbors and to our family and to the world. Father, we know that if we in the church try to cover our sins, we will not prosper and this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah says, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, as the light of seven days, in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. Christ was born in Bethlehem, and he was named Jesus, because he came to save us from our sins. So as a minister of this glorious gospel, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is Luke chapter 2, verse 40. These are the words of God. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church, for your people, for the sacrament, for all the things that tie us together. I pray that your spirit would make these means, these ordinances effectual. And Father, I pray you do that this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been considering the uh, doctrine of Christmas in the light of uh, the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon, and I want to continue that theme this morning, and I want to get into the weeds a little bit, but not, not the esoteric weeds. I want to get into the practical weeds. It's one thing to say, yeah, Jesus is truly God and truly man, but at some point in your meditations, you're going to think, oh, wait a minute, how, 
what about this verse or what about that idea? And I want to address some of those issues sort of straight up the middle. I'm calling this message Christmas with both feet on the ground. Christmas with both feet on the ground. This is an incarnation we are celebrating after all. The transcendent God is Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean to say God is with us? So one of our great temptations is to project doctrinal anachronisms back into the past. When Jesus was living among us and when he was teaching his disciples, it's pretty, for, it's pretty easy for us to take post-resurrection realities or post-ascension realities, or even post-Nicene realities, things that we know, and project them back into the disciples' experience and want to slap them. You know, <laughs> why don't you understand these things? Why don't, we need to understand that all of us in the position of the disciples would have done no better. These, the, there were a, a number of things that were predicted throughout the Old Testament that were for the first time coming into focus. Even the angels, as Peter tells us, longed to look into what was up. Something's up. Something big is up. But we, even the angels didn't know uh, what, that, what that was. And it was slowly coming into focus for the disciples in their brilliant moments of clarity where Peter confesses, you're the Christ. Uh, and, and Jesus tells him that, that you didn't, you're not speaking on your own there. That's, that's true. So you have that, those sorts of moments of lucidity, but you don't have complete clarity. It is not the case that the disciples, as they were following Jesus along the road, it's not the case that they were thinking in terms of the Nicene Creed. It's not the case that they knew all the things that the church has hammered out over centuries. Now, when I say the church is hammered out, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the church cooking things up. I'm talking about the church examining, prayerfully studying the scriptures, seeing what the implications of these revealed realities are. So, the one, but the one thing that we must not do is we must not take what we know and then project it back into the experience of the disciples on the road as they're following Jesus. We can't project them back into the minds of the disciples. Now, these were realities. What we confess, it was true at that point. The issue is not what was true. All right? the, the Nicene realities were true from the moment of the Lord's conception on. We're talking about what was known about those truths. So these were realities at these early times, but they were not known or confessed realities yet. The disciples had a dim and hazy understanding of who Jesus really was, but it did not really come into focus for them until after the resurrection. After the resurrection and after the Spirit is given and after the Spirit leads them into all truth as Jesus promised he would, they begin writing letters to Christians explaining these things. So it didn't come into focus for them until after the resurrection. And I want to, one of the things I want to talk about this morning is even the understanding that Jesus grew up into, as he grew, was an understanding of his own identity and mission, which increased over time. And that was our text this morning. Let me read it again. And the child grew, this is the child Jesus, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up. Jesus grew in understanding. 
There was a point when he didn't know how to tie his shoes, and there was a point when he did, all right? That he learned things. He grew up in a household. Now, speaking of the Lord Jesus as a child, Luke tells us some very interesting things. First, as a true child, he grew. His spirit grew stronger, which means that it grew stronger than it had been before. So if he grew in strength, that means that he was stronger at one moment than he'd been the moment before. The child was filled with wisdom, and you could see that wisdom growing in him. In all of this, it was clear that the grace of God, meaning the favor of God, was resting upon him. Uh, the grace of God uh, means God's favor. When God's favor is shown to sinners, it involves forgiveness of sin necessarily. But God's grace, God's favor can rest on someone where there's no sin to absolve. Jesus never sinned, not even as a child, not as a, not as a toddler, not as a boy. He never sinned. He was, he was the sinless one. And, God, and yet God's grace, God's favor can still rest upon him. And there's an echo here of what was said centuries before about Samuel. 1 Samuel 2.26, and the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Jesus was special from the, from the first moment, from before his conception. The angel appeared to Mary and announced to her what was going to happen. And Jesus was in a unique category from the moment of conception on. But what did everyone around him understand about that unique condition? And given the fact that Jesus grew in understanding, what did Jesus himself know and understand? The sum of what I'm saying here is that the baby Jesus was not lying in a manger thinking something like, well, 30 years to go. You know, it's not like the, the, his body was a carrying case for someone who was just ticking off the moments until he could begin teaching, all right? It was, he, he had the true experience of a true human being growing up. To say that he was thinking inside, well, 30 years to go, is too much like God in a man suit to be orthodox, assuming infinitude inside and finitude outside. That is a false notion. When, we, when you look at the Nicene Creed, and when you look at the, uh, the definition of Chalcedon that we recited this morning, when it says truly God and truly man, it is denying partly God and partly man. It's denying that Jesus was a hybrid. It's denying that Jesus was a man in his body, but his soul was divine. It's denying that he was 80% this and 20% that. It is saying he was 100% God and he was 100% man. He was man in all the experience of what it means to be a human being. He was a true human being. He is like us. He is our high priest. He couldn't be our high priest unless he were one of us, unless he were like us. So we are confessing that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and these natures are fully united together in one person, Jesus, the son of Mary, and this union in Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the son of Mary, is accomplished without mashing the two natures together. The, the natures don't blend, the natures don't get jumbled up, the natures don't get confused, and as the, as the definition said this morning, they're not separated either. So that creates questions. Should 
If you're, if you're thinking about what you confess and you're not just on autopilot, you should be, the, these questions ought to arise. To say that Jesus was fully God and fully man is to say that he was fully infinite and fully finite. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Jesus was fully infinite and fully finite. And that means that infinitude and finitude must somehow be added together and not finitude somehow subtracted from infinitude, right? So it's not like you take infinitude and then let's just subtract a little bit for the finite man and th there you have it. No, it's fully in, in, he's fully infinite, fully God, and he has the full total experience of what it means to be bounded, to be finite, to be limited. And you might say, and this is an important thing here, we are defining what we confess. We are not trying to do the math, right? We're not, we're not trying to act like we can uh, parse it out and explain all the dynamics. This is a miracle. It's probably the central miracle of all scripture. If we could explain how Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, if, if you could explain that, if you could do the math on that, if you could do the math on how he walked on water, Frankly, you'd be a lot richer than you are now. Right? You would be smarter than you are now. You'd be way smarter than you are now. We can't do the math. It's a miracle, right? It's a miracle. God, it's not, it's not something that is mysterious to God. God is, we don't confess that God is drawing round squares. We don't confess that God is contradicting himself. It would be a contradiction to say infinitude is simultaneously infinite, and that infinitude is also finite. That's not what we're saying. We're saying Jesus of Nazareth had two natures, infinitude being the characteristic of one, and finitude being the characteristic of the other, but we're not jumbling those two things together. We're not saying the infinite is the same as the finite. So, these things must be added together and brought together in, by, by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was fully omniscient and truly limited in knowledge. Jesus was fully omniscient and truly limited in knowledge. Now, what is the psychological impact of all this? What's the psychological import of it? What was Jesus thinking and experiencing? Fortunately, I think the Bible tells us. The Bible gives us some clear indications. And what we're confessing about Jesus being God, Jesus being man, is taken straight out of Scripture. We're just putting, putting the signposts where the Bible uh, puts them. Uh, the Lord your God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Jesus is God. He neither slumbers nor sleep. And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. All right, there, you have those two things. So that, that's the kind of uh, textual... Um, data that the early church was grappling with. God doesn't slumber or sleep. God never sleeps. Jesus is God. And Jesus, the one who is God, was asleep in the boat. So let's work through this. The experience of finitude. Jesus experienced what it means to be bounded and limited just like you do. Jesus knows what it's like to be bounded and limited just like you experience it. In his divine nature, Jesus was fully omniscient. But in the lived experience that Jesus had, this was a knowledge that he did not tap into. It was a knowledge that he didn't use to cheat with. All right? So Jesus is not walking down the streets of Nazareth using his omniscience to look around the corner to see who he's going to meet 
next. He is experiencing what it means to be a true human being. So he, does, he is omniscient, but he doesn't utilize it. He doesn't apprehend it or put it into practice. How do we know this? There are several instances in Scripture where Jesus confesses that he does not know something. Being omniscient and experiencing omniscience are not the same thing. Being omniscient and experiencing it are not the same thing. Jesus experienced finitude. Mark 5, 30. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? So Jesus is on his way. Uh, uh, the uh, Jairus' daughter had uh, died or was about to die. It's interesting that this woman with the hemorrhage had had the hemorrhage for 12, 12 years, and we're also told that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. So she was born the same time this woman's problem started, and we're told, given that detail for some reason. Jesus is on the way to help this man with his sick daughter, and a woman in the crowd, there's, there's, there's a crowd jostling Jesus, and a woman comes up and says, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And, and she does so. Jesus feels the virtue, the power, the healing power drain from him, all right? And this, all, this is another indication of his finitude. Af after a full day of healing people, Jesus was exhausted. Jesus needed to withdraw. Jesus was tapped out. All right, so Jesus felt the virtue drain from him. He felt the power for healing drain from him. And he turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples look at him. What do you mean who touched you? Pretty much everybody, it would seem. Everybody touched you. We're in a crowd. We're jostling along. What do you mean who touched you? Jesus said, no, no, I've, something just happened. And the woman, trembling, comes forward and confesses that she was the one who touched me. But Jesus asked, who touched me? He didn't look around and say, you touched me. He said, who touched me? Then another passage is Mark 13, verse 32. But of that day, he's speaking of the second coming. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Jesus says, the Son doesn't know when the Son will return. I don't know when I will return. The Father knows, the angels don't know, no man knows, I don't know, the Father does. Which ought to put a little hiccup into the, the people who write books telling us when Jesus is coming back. <laughs> Jesus says, no man knows, the angels don't know, the Son of God doesn't know, and then some guy in the back says, but I do. <laughs> and, I, and I've got a book coming out, 9.95, all right. So, no, Jesus says, the son doesn't know. And yet, all right, let's, that, that, that's on one side of the ledger. And yet, at the same time, at the same time, we know that Jesus had to have known of, the divine, of his divine vocation from early on. Jesus had to have known of his divine vocation from early on. Luke almost certainly got his knowledge of the early events of the life of Jesus from Mary. He says he got his accounts from eyewitnesses in Luke 1-2. So Luke says, I've told you the story. I told you about the, the shepherds uh, tending their flocks. I told you about the magi. You know, I, uh, well, no. Luke doesn't do the magi. Excuse me, I don't think he does. Anyway, um, but the Magi were part of the, the account that had to have 
come from, um, uh, come from Mary. And so he says pointedly that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart, Luke 2, 19. And then there was that back closet of their house with three chests containing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. An angel had appeared to her before she conceived. Mary knew that she had conceived when she was still a virgin. Mary knew that. I mean, something was up. Something was up. Mary knew that she had conceived as a virgin. She knew that an angel had appeared to her. She knew that shepherds had come out of the fields um, to worship Jesus the night of his birth. She knew that within two years, kings or magi or important personages from the east had shown up with these treasures to worship, um, to worship the Lord Jesus. And Herod had killed all the boy babies in, in the area around Bethlehem in order to deal with this threat. Something was up. We also know that Jesus had a strong awareness of who he was by the time that he was 12. And he said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? That's in Luke 2.49. Jesus knew at this point that he had to be about his father's work. At the same time, he did not know why Joseph and Mary were frantic with worry. Jesus knew that he had to be about his father's business. Joseph and Mary had gone down to Jerusalem with Jesus, who's 12, and then they head on home when it's time to go home. And after the, after the first day of travel, they look around to, to connect with Jesus, assuming that he was in the caravan and no Jesus. And so they go back to Jerusalem and they spend three days looking for him, right? And they've got to be beside themselves, right? They've got to be beside themselves. And Jesus is curious. What, didn't you know where to look? Didn't you know I'd be here? And Jesus is interacting with the rabbis, um, and he's talking with them, and they're astounded at how much he knows. And we can look at how much he knows, and we can also look at how much he doesn't know about the psychology of moms, right? So, but, but at the same time, the text doesn't charge him with anything. It, it goes out of its way to say that Jesus went home with them, Luke uh, 2, uh, 51, and he was submissive to them. It, it, there's, Jesus is not charged with any sin in this. But there is certainly a limitation, and a t but a testimony at the same time to the fact that he knew that he had to be about his father's business. And, th and right after this, this is part of what Mary treasured up in her heart. Mary is keeping uh, a ledger. Mary is keeping a journal talking about all these things. She is tuned in to the fact that something remarkable is happening. And Jesus, when he's 12, knows that he has a unique relationship with his father in heaven. Jesus knows he has a unique relationship, and we know that he knows that much. And so right after this is our text saying that Jesus flourished under the grace and favor of God. Okay, so we have uh, sort of a limitless opening where we know that something big, something stupendous is up. And at the same time, we have testimonies in scripture that Jesus was finite. He needed to eat. He needed to sleep. He needed to find out things. He needed to learn from his father how to make a, how to make a table and so on. Also, incidentally, this uh, incident with um, uh, when Jesus is 12 is the last mention of Joseph in the, 
text. So Joseph apparently uh, died sometime shortly after this. Mary uh, is alive down through uh, Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus uh, gives her over to uh, John to care for after, um, after he's gone. And so John takes her into his house. So Mary lives a long time. Joseph disappears from the, the account after this incident when Jesus is 12. Now, Jesus presented himself to John the Baptist for a reason. All right, Jesus grew up studying the scriptures. Jesus, by the time he's 12, he's able to flummox the rabbis. So Jesus was growing in the grace of God's favor. He's steeped in the scriptures. And by the time he's 30, he's really steeped in the scriptures. And by the time he's 30, around 30, we're told, um, he presents himself to John the Baptist to be baptized. Jesus already knew, I believe, Jesus already knew in a certain sense when he came to the river. Now, it's important here because Jesus is the sinless one. Jesus never sinned. That's also another indicator that something's up, right? You've got a boy growing up in your household with a bunch of other boys and some sisters, we're told, and one of them's not sinning. <laughs> if you're anything like all the people here, that would sort of stand out. This, this one never sinned. So Jesus never sinned, and yet the first act of his uh, public ministry is to undergo a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance. John is baptizing sinner after sinner after sinner. Repentant sinner, but he's, he's just baptizing sinners. And then Jesus comes to him for a reason and says, it's time for me to be baptized. Jesus is identifying with the sins of his people from the first moment of his ministry. So his entire ministry is one of identification with his people, including identification with their sins. So Jesus already knew when he came to the river, but when he's baptized, something remarkable happens. In a special and miraculous sense, what he knew was then divinely communicated and sealed to him, confirmed to him when a voice spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son. All right. Notice what is, what is communicated from heaven. It, it is a communication about who Jesus is. The father identifies with him. The father owns him. The father says, this is my son. This is my son. That was communicated to Jesus, confirmed to him, sealed to him at his baptism. Another, uh, in Luke uh, 3.22, it says, And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. So God the Father testifies to Jesus at his baptism that he is beloved and received. God is pleased with him. This is when Jesus is coming from the baptism of repentance. The one who never needed to repent for anything went through the baptism of repentance, which was not a lie. It, what, what it was was an identification as a covenant head for all his people who are sinners. Jesus is the only person who can repent perfectly is a perfect person who is also the only person who doesn't need to repent at all. Our, our repentance, whenever we repent, 
there's always some kind of angle in it. We're always working it somehow. We've always got some, we, even when it's genuine repentance, it's hard for us to say, uh, that, that, that time of repentance, I nailed it. I totally nailed it. No, there's always, you know, we can have genuine repentance that is still imperfect. Our repentance requires repenting. Our repentance requires repenting. We need someone to repent for us. We need a perfect one to repent for us. Jesus, the perfect representative of all his people, is the one who did that. He repented for us. And as soon as he repented perfectly, his father said, well done. His father said, this is my son. His father said, I am well pleased with this one. And what was confirmed to him at his baptism is the very point of the assault from the devil in the, in the temptation that immediately follows in Luke 4.1. So in Matthew, Jesus is baptized and the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. In Luke, you have an intervening genealogy, but the temptation in the wilderness was immediately after Jesus repented. Right? So we, we are tempted and then we repent. Jesus repented and then was tempted. Right? It was a reverse order. Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he's assaulted by the devil in the temptation. Now, what's the, in, in the devil's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, what's the tip of the devil's spear? Now, he, Jesus is tempted to throw himself down off the pinnacle, and he's tempted to, um, uh, to uh, make um, stones into bread, and, you know, he's tempted in particular ways. But what's the import of all three of them? The devil says, if you are the son of God, well, that's the tip of the devil's spear. If you are what God just said at your baptism that you are, God just said, you're my son. I'm saying this needs to be tested. The devil says, we need to check this out. We need independent confirmation. So the, the, the tip of the devil's spear is, if you are the son of God, that is, that is where Jesus is assaulted. His identity is the point of the temptation. Who Jesus is, is the thing that Jesus is being tempted to doubt. That was the thing that had just been confirmed to him from heaven. So that was the truth that Jesus was being tempted to test. That was what he was being challenged to doubt. That was what he was being provoked, the devil was attempting to provoke him to independently confirm. So Jesus did not do the great miracles that he did, and he did not know what he miraculously knew because he was God inside. Uh, that is, we confess that Jesus is fully God, but we need to understand that Jesus did the miracles he did. He walked on water the way he did because he was a spirit-anointed man. Jesus healed the sick as a spirit-anointed man. The things that he did, he equipped the disciples to do. They were not God incarnate. Jesus healed the sick, and he commissioned his disciples to go out and heal the sick. Peter walked on the water just like Jesus did. Well, not just like Jesus did, a little shorter distance, but Peter walked on water as Jesus did. The things that Jesus did were things that his disciples were able to do when they were equipped and empowered by the Spirit. So Jesus did all that he did because the Holy Spirit empowered him to do so. What, he did what he did throughout the course of his ministry as a Spirit-empowered man. Now, to be tempted, to be tempted is to be limited and finite. 
To be tempted is to be limited and finite. And Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. He has that experience, which is a strong consolation for us. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, it says in Hebrews 4.15. The word rendered here is touched, means to suffer together with. Jesus was touched with the feeling that you have when you're being assaulted. When you're being assaulted, when you're being tempted to give way to something that's just bad, and you know it's bad, and yet you want to, you want to reach out and touch, you want to reach out and grab, you want to go to that site, you want to give way to that malice, you want, you, you've got this pressure, and you haven't given way yet, Jesus knows what that's like. And you can, you can derive strong consolation from the fact that he knows what that's like. Now, I said earlier that Jesus was sinless. Not only was he sinless, but the prophets foretold that he would remain sinless. He was going to see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. It says in Isaiah, we, the prophets knew that Christ was never going to succumb to the temptations he went through. And we have a false, temp we have a false definition of temptation, and we say, well, then he wasn't really tempted. If he couldn't have sinned, he wasn't really tempted. It doesn't work that way. Let me ask you, uh, let me give you this illustration. Were, Jesus, were the bones that Jesus had, were they breakable? Were Jesus' bones breakable? Well, they weren't made of titanium, right? They weren't made of steel. If you had put his arm there and dropped an anvil on it, his arm would have broken. But his arm could be broken, but scripture cannot be broken. Do you see that? His arm could be broken. His, his bones were frangible. His bones were breakable, just like ours. His bones were made up of the same kind of material that ours are. They were breakable. They were fully breakable. Was Jesus temptable? Yes. Yes, Jesus, he went through the same experience of temptation that you and I go through. Jesus was temptable. But the word of God cannot be broken. The Word of God said that he was going to withstand those temptations. The Word of God said that he was going to stand true. He was going to stand firm. So the Bible says that these were true temptations. But those temptations that Jesus experienced were to be tempted is to experience finitude. It's to experience finitude. God cannot be tempted. The Bible says God cannot be tempted. Why cannot be why cannot God be tempted? Well, what would you offer him to get him to? God has everything. He is everything. God, God is the infinite I am. He is beyond the reach of temptation because of the situation he's in. Jesus took on a human body so that he could die, right? So that he could die because God is immortal, and without a human mortal body, he could not die. Without a human body that's finite and bounded, he could not be tempted. And if he wasn't truly tempted, he's not your high priest, but he was truly tempted, and your high priest knows exactly what it's like to go through the things you go through, and he also knows what it's like to stand instead of fall, right? Now, we might say, well, unless he has the full experience of capitulating, then he can't really know what it's like. No, it's, that doesn't follow either. If you, uh, the, I've used this illustration before. If there's 100-mile-an-hour winds outside, and we all decide to walk home, and most of us blow over in the parking lot, one person walks a block or two and then blows over, um, and one person walks all the way home, standing upright in the wind. Who knows the most about wind? The one who walks all the way home. 
the one, who not, the one who never falls is the one who knows the most about wind. We like to flip it. We like to say, oh, you're a goody-goody. You don't know anything about sin. You don't know anything about temptation. I know all about it because I blew over in the parking lot. You don't know. You know what it's like to lie face down in the parking lot. You don't know what it's like to walk in the wind, right? Jesus knows more about temptation than anybody in this room. Jesus knows more about temptation. He knows more about the experience of temptation than anybody in the history of the world. Jesus, who stood upright in the pressures of temptation, knows more about it than we do. Right? He, and he knows more about it as a man who is spirit-empowered. So, it says in Hebrews 3.1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man. As God, he is the sent one from God, the apostle of God coming to us. Apostello means sent one, one uh, to send. Jesus, as the apostle of God, is the sent one of God. Jesus comes to us as Emmanuel. Jesus comes to us as God. So he represents God to us. But he's fully man. And as fully man, he's the other part of that verse in Hebrews 3.1. He is the high priest of our profession. Jesus, as high priest, represents us to God. Jesus, fully God, comes to us, Emmanuel. Jesus, fully man, is our elder brother. Jesus, fully man, is our high priest. Jesus, fully man, is the new Adam, the head of a new human race, and he leads that new human race to God. He's our high priest, coming to God on our behalf. <laughs> he is the perfect bridge that crosses the chasm between a holy God and sinful man. And that is the entire point of Christmas. A holy God and sinful man being reconciled. God and sinner reconciled. That's what it's all about. That's the reason for it. That's the point of it. And so we thank our God. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. I pray that as we meditate on these things, you would give us light and clarity. I pray that we would uh, just adore the mystery where there's mystery and that we would simply uh, submit to what the teacher, what the scriptures plainly teach us. And we commit all this to you because we are praying in the name of the one who taught us to pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you know, the good news of the birth of Jesus was first proclaimed to shepherds by angels out in the field outside of Bethlehem. You should remember that shepherds were, as a rule, a fairly despised class of people. They were dirty, sometimes considered untrustworthy and not the most respectable folks in town. But God sent his most glorious heavenly messengers with a royal announcement to those men first. And they believed, and so they went and found Jesus and worshiped him there. And in this, God establishes the unmistakable point that it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, or what you've done. The same message comes to all, high and low, rich and poor, male and female, young and old, to every people of every nation. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This is the message of Christmas, but this is also the message of the gospel. And the only question is, what will you do with this royal message, this royal invitation? It's a royal message because it speaks of the royal one, the King, Christ the Lord.
It was sent by God himself in the mouths of angels. What will you do with it? Will you believe? Will you drop what you're doing and worship him now? Will you drop your excuses? Will you drop your fear? Will you drop your explanations, your accusations, your blaming? Will you stop trying to save yourself, be your own savior, be your own Lord, be your own Christ? This table is a humble table, like the stable, like the swaddling clothes, but like that first stable, Christ is here. So come and worship, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you sent your Son, that your word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that by the proclamation of this gospel, centuries hence, we have beheld his glory, your glory, the glory of our Father. And so we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name, and amen. You've heard this morning the good news of Christmas, that God himself has taken on human flesh and he knows what it is to be a man. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to be two and six and 27. He knows what it is. He's experienced it all. And now he sits enthroned at God's right hand and he pleads for you and me. That's the good news of Christmas, that Jesus is our high priest. So go now in confidence and faith, believing and receive your God's blessing, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you now and remain with you forever and amen.